title of my message tonight is Joy Made Me Do It. If, uh, if the enemy can steal your joy, he's made you a unproductive and useless Christian. Joy made me do it. We need to have joy in our lives. Today, I'm gonna read a significant portion of Scripture. And so if you have your Bibles, crack them open to John chapter four. We are reading about the woman at the well. It'll be on the screens as well, but if you do have a physical Bible, I find it's better to read it. So this is where Jesus is coming into Samaria. Samaria and uh, Samaritans and, and Jews, not the best of friends, but here Jesus is in Samaria. He came to a town of Samaria um, near the property that Jacob had given his son. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon, hottest part of the day. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. The only people coming to draw water at noon are people trying to avoid other people. No one's at the, at the well at noon. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone to town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She asked him. Jews don't associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket and the well is deep. Where are you gonna get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and he drank from it himself. So did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty. In fact, the water I will give them will become a well of water springing up in them for eternal life. Sir, the woman said to him, give me this water that I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. Go, call your husband, he told her, and come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. You have correctly said I don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. We skip a few verses here. They have a bit of a dialogue and uh, that's a whole nother uh, sermon in itself, but we're gonna skip down to verse 27 here. Um, and we know in this part for the Samaritan woman, she goes off to get her husband to tell people what Jesus has said to her in that moment. But just as she goes off, the disciples come back and they're amazed that Jesus was talking to a woman. Yet no one said, what do you want or why are you talking with her? The woman left her water jar, went into town and told the people. And this is, this is a, a line, you need to remember this line. Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They left the town and made their way to him. In the meantime, the disciples kept urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said, I have food to eat that you don't know about. He would, I think Jesus would be really annoying to live with sometimes. <laughs> you need water, I have water you don't know about. Do you have food? I have food you don't know about. Like maybe he's got like a little snack pack. Maybe he wears one of those like little bum bags where he's got his own little snacks. But he's talking about something a little bit different. We'll get to that. The disciples said, could someone have brought him something to eat? And Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish that work. Don't you say there are still four, four more months and then the harvest. Listen to what I'm telling you. Open your eyes and look at the fields because they are ready for harvest, that line still rings true. They're ready for harvest. The reaper is already receiving pay and gathering fruit for eternal life. And this is the other line I want you to remember. So that the sower and reaper can rejoice together. 
For in this case, the saying is true, one sows, another reaps. I send you to reap what you didn't lay before. The Saviour of the world, verse 39. Now Samaritans from that town believed in Him because of what the woman said when she testified, He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to Him, they asked Him to stay with them and He stayed with them for two days. And many more believed because of what He said. And then they told the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said, but since we have heard from ourselves and we know this really is the Saviour of the world. Okay, long scripture, great story. What's it got to do with joy? And let's go, let's go back. Let's, I think this story, if we ask the right questions of this story, this has a lot of cultural parallels to where we are today. If we go, uh, not even a century ago, let's go back to like when our, when our grandparents were kids, like 70 years ago, and we look at the world and the cultural landscape of the Western world then, we look at that place, we had a kind of social pressure towards Christianity. Okay, so in those days, you had a social pressure to attend church. Most of society did it. You were supposed to go to church. In fact, in many US states, when you went for a mortgage or something, they asked what church you go to, because how could you be a trustworthy person if you did not go to church? There was a social pressure to be a person of faith. That was about 70 years ago. Now, if we go forward probably another 30, 40 years, so probably 30 years ago, there's no longer a social pressure to attend church, a social pressure to believe in Jesus, but now there's more of a social acceptance around it, that it's more like a, more like a live and let live kind of attitude. Oh, you go to church, oh, good for you. That's good for you. We kind of like the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, treat others with respect. We like the kind of moral and ethical boundaries that the Bible sets. I don't personally go, but you go, good for you. It's kind of a social acceptance around Christianity and faith. But more increasingly, what we've seen in the cultural landscape of the Western world, and Australia still is a little bit behind um, the US, but because of kind of the universalism and globalisation of the world, we catch up real quick. More increasingly, we've moved on from a social pressure to attend church to a social acceptance of it, but now we're seeing there is actually a bit of a social cost to following Jesus. That in... Um, People are viewed as having such a narrow viewpoint of it that even in, uh, in the US, there's, they're almost viewed as people that are bad for society because they're stopping the progression of these modern day principles that are happening in universities. And, and Christians are saying, no, we can't do that. So they're kind of stopping the progression of society and we've been called too narrow or too exclusive in all these different ways. And so there's more of a social cost to following Jesus now. That if there's probably, you might lose respect in a workplace or people might think you're silly for doing this or silly for doing that. And, and this social cost is actually not a new concept. Sometimes we think that our cultural moment is where we are in 2022 is totally unique. But there was a social, and so see, we see this, I'll, I'll go back and I'll show you why this is relevant to the woman at the well. There's a social pressure goes to a social acceptance. And now we're seeing that there is kind of a social cost. That if you go to your friends and say, hey, I love Jesus, they'll be like, you're weird. Who's that? Where's Jesus? Show me him. You got a photo? Where's his Instagram page? Any of that? But this social cost is something that was common back in this day. When, when John wrote his book, it wasn't, it was about 
60, 70 AD. So late first century was when John was written. So this book, this uh, woman at the well was penned in the late first century. And this is the kind of landscape in the late first century. The Roman world was where it was written. The Roman world was polytheistic, which means not one God, many gods, lots of gods. In fact, every household had a God. I go over to Pastor Tim's house, he has a God that he worships. And then I go to Pastor Caleb's house, he's got a different God. Ash has a different God and everyone has a different God. In fact, cities had gods. You go to Brisbane, we have a God that we worship here. We go down to Adelaide and we go in and there's a different one. You get a God, you get a God, everybody gets a different God. And the way it worked was when you walked into someone else's place, you paid homage to their God. Maybe you burned some incense or maybe you said, oh yes, praise be to whatever God your household may be. As of today, my household is the God of nicely mowed lawns. So if you come in, you can uh, pay homage to my nicely mowed lawn. But, but back in that day, everyone had a different God. Then Christians popped up on the scene. And Christians popped up and they said this really controversial statement that not only is our God above all your gods, but actually all your gods are false gods. And when we come into your house, no, I'm not burning incense to your God. I don't believe they exist. And so Christians had this social cost because they were going against civility. They were going against courtesy. That I can't just walk into someone's house now because now I have to defy their whole ideology and spiritual belief system. And so all historians are saying, why do people hate Christians so much? It was because they threw society into this disarray because they wouldn't just bow down to these different ideologies that were around them. Now, do you start to see how this has some parallels to us today? That they, back then, they were seen as being too narrow, too exclusive, a threat to the social order because they wouldn't agree and bow down to another idol. And today, if we don't agree or bow down or agree with someone else's ideology around politics or sexuality or any of these things we're seen as too narrow or too exclusive. And why these, we aren't back in the, the Roman kind of theological landscape. There just are some parallels that we can ask of this scripture that makes sense to us right now. Now, in this time where there was a huge social cost to being a Christian, as in, if people found out, you can kind of lose your job social cost. There's a big social cost and we are at that level here. But in this environment, in that environment in the first century, Christianity grew more and at a higher percentage than ever. Okay, so higher social cost, higher persecution, insane growth rate. How did that, how's that happen? And historians ask that questions, both atheistic historians and Christian ones, like that doesn't really make sense. If there's such a social cost, why and how did it grow? And why and how did uh, people following Jesus seem to grow numerically? It wasn't where you could just invite someone to church. Be like, hey, come to church. It's a really great place because in those days, someone coming to church, this secret meeting be like, ah, oh, look at all the Christians. I'm gonna report them all. They're gonna lose their houses. And so you didn't really invite people in that way. And so they didn't have that luxury that we do have today, but it still spread rapidly. Why? And I wanna say this, um, I wanna show you why. This, this woman, this uh, woman at the well is a woman who was seen to her depths. In a moment, Jesus pierces her veil and her walls and her security. He sees through all of that 
and he sees to the depths of all who depths of who she is, but yet he still offers her eternal life in that moment. The woman left her jar and went into town and told all the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? I, I love this because this is just an ordinary woman. She's not some great preacher. She has no hidden talents. She has five husbands. She's like a social outcast. She's at the well because she doesn't wanna meet other people because she's not really accepted in society. She has just an ordinary person. But, but what's happening here? What does she go back and do? She goes back and tells people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? What's she doing? What's actually happening here? She's not sharing an academic theology. She's not sharing her notes on substitutionary atonement or, or something else. She, she, look, she's not even giving a gospel presentation. She's not even really sharing it. She is simply being honest about who Jesus is to her. Really simple. And, and this is it. This is the main part. This is the point I wanna first touch on. She's not hiding who she is from her friends and family. Super simple, right? Not hiding who she is from her friends and family. There's a natural progression to every relationship. If we are friends and say, Pastor April and I, we're friends. If after six months, she doesn't know that I have a wife and a daughter, I dare say we aren't very good friends. What, why is that? Because the natural progression of every relationship, every relationship where two people grow closer together as friends, as colleagues, romantically, happens because people know each other better. They find out something know each, each other know about. I mean, anyone, anyone ever met a CrossFitter? How do you know someone does CrossFit? Because they tell you within the first five seconds. I mean, I mean, we could say the same about like vegans or vapors or anyone that's been on a Euro trip recently. <laughs> but when anyone, when you have two people that are in any kind of relationship, that relationship will grow closer together if you find out more about the other person. That's simple. Oh, you also at the water cooler with your colleague. Oh, you go to wherever, Eat Street on Friday night. Awesome. You know, I've just found something out more about you. Every relationship progresses by finding out something more and more about the other person. This is how marriages grow closer together. This is how friendships grow closer together. Everything. And so to keep, if, if, if Jesus is real to you, if He's done anything for you, if he's central to your decision-making processing, if he's any kind of comfort in trouble, if he's any kind of truth in chaos, if he's anything to you at all, the only way to keep him out of any kind of relationship is for you to hide who you really are. And so as Christians, there is this huge danger that every single one of your relationships is gonna stall out if you don't let what's core be seen by other people. And this is what we're seeing in the church right now. If, if they can just stifle, if the narrative of the world can stifle and say, hey, you don't really need to talk about Jesus. Jesus is, is highly private. Jesus is highly personal. He's not at all private. Okay, the way this spread was literally this woman who knew nothing else just said, hey, I met this guy. This is what he did for me. That's, so, that's as easy as it is. That's how every relationship, there must be a point in your relationship where if Jesus is something to you, for a relationship to grow closer, you literally have to say, hey, I met someone. 
This is what He did with me. I, I was an angry, selfish guy. Jesus changed that about me. I went, that's, that's sharing the gospel. That is how the faith spread in the first century. It wasn't by doing an apologetics course, although we need to do that. It was just this moment where a woman at the well just met someone and said, she, he saw me to the depths, but he loved me to the skies. And because Christianity was so persecuted in the first century, the gospel didn't spread by inviting the church. We will always have a fantastic church service and we'll always put on great messages and equip the saints. And I'm so glad, I'm so glad someone invited me to this church. This is how I got stuck. This is how I found Jesus really for myself. Had accountability structures around my life to grow with Him. But it's not the church's job to reach your friends. It's you're in the world. You just need to tell them this bit. You need to stop hiding who you truly are. And in this world we are in now, we are in a world of calculated transparency. That I will calculate how much of my life to be transparent with. And I'm guilty of this from the platform. I'll tell you enough about my life that you think I'm being transparent, but just enough that I still have power up here. There's, there's no room for that moving forward with Christ. You have to, we need to place, replace calculated transparency with a vulnerability. Because right now in our society, it is more accepted, it is more accepted to tell people your socially accepted sins than to tell them your socially unaccepted morality. Like I can go out and, and people can tell you, hey, I spent $500 on alcohol on Friday night. It was crazy. Someone else says, hey, I gave $500 to the church. Be like, what are you doing, bro? Why are you, do you see what I mean? It's more accepted by society because we have some socially accepted sins. Hey, maybe, you know, uh, it's, I, I could tell your friends, oh, great, yep, I slept with my boyfriend or my girlfriend or whatever on the weekend. And someone else says, hey, I'm waiting till marriage. And they're like, what are you doing? Because our society has some socially accepted sins that we love to talk about as our calculated transparency, but it's socially unaccepted morality that it wants to cut off from our lives. And all this woman does is just have the courage to say, I am just gonna be vulnerable with who I am. I've, I've met someone and he's everything to me and I just wanna tell you one line about him. He didn't say everything. He, she just said, I met someone. He, he, he knew everything I ever did. Maybe he's special. Didn't even say he was. Maybe there's something to him. And I wonder if we could have the courage to do that in our world. Hey, I went to church. They told me about this Jesus guy. I was so angry and now I'm not. Yeah. Maybe there's something to this. Yeah. That's it. That's, that's all it is. That's how it's spread. Yeah. And the, the truth is that we all have a woman at the well moment in our life. Actually, where, Isaac, where's Isaac? Isaac, can you come up? Where is he? Yeah, welcome Isaac to the platform. I love Isaac. Hello, mate. Isaac has, uh, and I've watched this guy grow over the last 12 months. And some people like me, their story takes many years. Some people have an accelerated growth. And I kind of wanted to hear your story, your woman at the well story. Hopefully you haven't had five husbands, Isaac, but, but, <laughs> I do wanna know your transformation because I love stories about healing and I love stories about blessing, but nothing fires me up than seeing someone that was lost that is now found. And so Isaac, I'd love for you to share your story quickly. If you could firstly just tell us uh, who you were before, before you met Jesus, 
What were you going through last year, the previous years? So That'd be I great. had the privilege and honour of growing up in a Christian family and because of that, it meant that I got to live with my grandma for six months before she passed and in her last notes, she left in her Bible and they said, be there, be there to meet me in heaven. Don't let anything deter you from keeping that appointment. And those words hit me, but the thing about them is very quickly I learned that simply knowing of Jesus was so different to actually knowing him and having a relationship with him for myself. Fast forward a few years and I still knew of Jesus, but I failed to know him for myself. And by year 10, I was walking to the beat of my own drum and very much walking in the ways of the world. I was searching so hard for answers, searching for acceptance, searching for what I thought was freedom. And I found myself caught in the party culture and was making some pretty poor decisions. These few years were rough and I was feeling broken. I was feeling empty and I was searching for anything that would bring a sense of belonging, a sense of community, a sense of acceptance and a sense of love. Then last year hit, and in the April school holidays of my senior year, it felt like everything around me came crashing down. I found out that my parents were separating, sending what was already a huge sen senior year into complete chaos, and far out did I try and run. I was angry at the world, angry at my situation. I was lost, I was broken. It felt like everything I knew was falling down around me right in front of my very eyes. I had no idea where I was going to next and how on earth I was gonna get through the rest of the year 12. I found out about mum and dad and everything kinda of hit at once. I was feeling so lost, so broken. I was hurting. I was angry at everything that was going on. I was searching for every answer and I was trying to fill every single gap in my heart and in my soul with the things of the world whether it be falling into the all boys party culture or just making rogue decisions. I didn't recognise who I was and let alone how on earth my situation or my brokenness was going to change. Crazy. And, and you're not alone in that. There's so many people have reached that point that there is a, a moment where everything seems too much, too far gone, and then there is always a turnaround. You meet Jesus and tell me about that. That's, that's the power. So I did, I had that woman at the well moment and out of nowhere, I had this nudge. I had this nudge to start praying and amongst all the brokenness and all the confusion over what was going on, I started praying and dead set the morning after. City Point and Youth Society came up on the people you should follow on Instagram the next morning. <laughs> yeah, so a little over 12 months ago, I walked into youth and I walked into church again and far out did these nights change my life. And the moment I walked in, Jesus met me. He met me where I was and He wrapped me up in His love and He knew that every single decision I'd made was wiped away at an instant. And all of a sudden my life started changing right before my very eyes. The moment I turned to Jesus, I found peace. I found joy. I found a sense of community and I found a sense of belonging that I never thought I could find. Jesus brought peace to my chaos. He ended my searching. He loved me and continued to love me enough to cover any of my brokenness. From that moment, a little over 12 months ago, I found a peace that surpasses all understanding. I felt a love like no other. And I've got a community who continue to push me each and every single day in my relationship with Jesus. 
Fast forward 12 months and I now have the privilege and honour of serving on the youth team under the phenomenal leadership of Pastor Liam and Maddie Barlow. And I have the honour of leading a group of year seven boys who are just so on fire for God. Jesus has changed my world. He's changed my heart and He's changed my life. I'm now studying a Bachelor of Ministry in Business through CMC. I'm getting to learn how to love God and love people each and every single day. Meeting Jesus and getting to know Him and build a relationship with Him for myself is the greatest thing to possibly happen in my life. And He's been able to wipe clean any sin. He's been able to cover any past hurt and He's opened so many doors that I could have never dreamed possible. And for that, I am eternally grateful. Come on, can we give God some praise? Thank you, mate. If I asked everyone in this room, you probably all have your own woman at the well moment. That, that incredible moment where he just intervenes. They want to feel pumped up from listening to someone else just share their, their testimony. That can happen in your day every day. Just, hey, I met this guy, this is, I met Jesus and maybe he's this. Come check him out. I love those two things that the woman of the well does. She says, she says that. One, she says, come see a man. Not come see a magical well. Not come see a three-point sermon at City Point. Not come see a rock concert for 30 minutes. It's come and meet somebody. That's the purpose of church. We do all this, we design all of this. The ecclesiology of the church is so that you can meet a person. And his name is Jesus. And you come see a man. Maybe he's the Messiah. As in, I don't know yet. I haven't even fully chosen. Yet so many people came to believe even when she wasn't fully convinced. Jesus is enough, okay? He, he's big enough for people's curiosity. He's, he's, more, he's powerful enough. He's loving enough. And so often we get confused in the peripherals where, hey, you should come to church to hear the, the truth about you know, this political alignment or the truth about sexuality or the truth. There is great places for those discussions and they need to happen, but we need to get back to the main thing where it's just come and meet Jesus. He's big enough to sustain their interest. Like sometimes we need to think we need to make church more interesting or Christianity more interesting. And so we spend our time on the peripherals. Jesus is big enough for them. Do you have faith in Jesus to be big enough for that person? He's powerful enough, He's personable enough. And just like to that woman where He sees to the heart of her, Jesus sees to the heart of every single person every one of you in this room, every colleague that you have, every family member that you have, but Jesus has always been about partnership with people. Come and look at, come and see this man. And I love this as well. This is like a kind of a side bonus. He was a social outcast. I have to go draw water from the well at noon because it's busy and all the other times and I don't have enough social standing to get to the front of the line. Go, and then from being this outcast, she goes back and a whole bunch of people follow her out. Just this knowledge of Jesus is this social reconciliation as well, where she bridges the gap in her community with that too. So while we aren't facing a cost as great as the first century Christians, it is evident that in the 21st century, people are shutting their mouths around issues of faith. And so while the cost isn't as great, we're definitely feeling that social cost of it. 
why then should we share? Or where do we get the motivation to share? Jesus says in verse 34, my food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to finish His work. Jesus told them, don't you say, there are still four more months and then comes the harvest. He he goes to farming analogies like all the time. Listen to what I'm telling you. Open your eyes and look at the fields because they're ready for harvest. Sometimes we can't see them ready for harvest. You don't know who's ready. Any person who's doing uni ministry in this place, sometimes the people that come to church and hear the gospel are not the ones that you thought were gonna do it. And the ones that you thought were gonna get there, they're like, they're like your 10 year plan. <laughs> we don't know who's ready. God does and He says the harvest is ready. I love this part. The reaper is already receiving pay and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper can rejoice together. And, and this is a big thing from Jesus. The, the, he said, I've already got water to drink. I've already got food to eat. And this is what he's saying here. Here's my real food. This is what sustains me. This is what refreshes me. This is what invigorates me. It's the sowing and the reaping. And it will sustain you. If it sustains Jesus, it will sustain you. And so many people feel burnt out and they feel tired. They feel something's missing. And often the time it's because we keep our mouth closed about who we truly are. We need to have a vulnerability and a courage about who we are. And you will find you are more refreshed when you do that. In verse 36, we see the answer to why share. Where's our motivation? The secret to the whole thing is a matter of joy. Joy made me do it. Look at this, sower and reaper rejoice together. And that, that we can kind of always think that, oh yeah, because one person sows and the other one reaps and then they get a harvest and they're like, yay, that was a good time. But that's not really how it works. It's a farming analogy. But in farming, the sower never rejoices. You go out all day, you toil all day, you spread seed all day. At the end of the day, you turn around and look at your work, nothing. It is not a fun time. The sowing sucks. Harvest is the fun time. Harvest is where all your crops are done and whatever it is, or corn or something, you bring it in and you can eat and you can make money. And that's the time for rejoicing. But here it says, the sower and the reaper rejoice together. As in, the sower is having an awesome time and the reaper is having an awesome time. Both are joyful. And sometimes we think, well, my sowing, my joy is when they make a decision or they come to know Christ, that's my joy. But what this is saying is that we don't sow to joy, we sow from joy. That you don't sow to get joy, you sow from a place of joy. The reaper, we understand that, but to sow, you must have joy. There is this quote, it's a John Stock quote, nothing shuts the mouth and seals the lips and ties the tongues like the secret poverty of our spiritual experience. And I think this is where it comes from. Psalm 51, verse 12. Restore, this is King David talking. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. You will not have a willing spirit to do what God has asked you to do and you won't have the strength to be sustained if you don't have the joy of your salvation. And the reason that most people don't open our mouths and close up internally and have shallow relationships isn't a matter of training, it's a matter of character and remembering 
the joy of our salvation because we get so sidetracked with a temporary future enjoyment that we lose sight of an eternal joy of salvation. These are the four main reasons why people hide who they are. Pride, that if you share, our oh, people are idiots, they probably won't get it anyway. You know, I got it, but they, they might not. Pride, fear, it's scary to share. It's scary to be vulnerable. Pessimism, why would I share? They probably wouldn't even believe anyway. Like, I'm not good at that. That's not me, I'm not an evangelist. You know, we'll leave that to the uni ministry crew. Indifference, you know, I'm saved, I, I go to church, isn't that enough? Like, I'm pretty tired. I'm tired all the time. Like, in all these cases, it's a lack of joy. Joy of your salvation undermines pride, it undermines fear, it undermines pessimism, it undermines indifference. And so how do you get the joy? And I think this comes from Pastor Mike Mulherin here. He has this saying that I've stolen many times. It's thanksgiving flows from right remembering. And thanksgiving and joy are tied together in the way that thanksgiving is an overflow from joy, but also thanksgiving produces joy. They're kind of like this roundabout, but they both flow from right remembering. Look at what Jesus did for this woman at the well. She, she couldn't get over it. She couldn't forget what He did. In, like the first, there's three main things that He goes against society's flow for. One, it was a patriarchal society and He was a man talking to a woman by themselves. Goes against society to even just do that. He, he loved her enough to go against that. It was a racist society where Jews looked down on the Samaritans that Jesus crossed that line for her too. It was a moralistic society that a rabbi, a holy man, would talk to this chick who'd had five husbands and was living with someone that wasn't her husband again, yet still Jesus crosses the line, goes against society's expectations and offers her eternal life. To all of us, to her, to you, to me, He sees us to the depths and loves us to the skies. Do you remember what He's done for you? I remember what Jesus has done for me. I remember the guy that I was. I remember the, the parties, the wasted money, the wasted lifestyle, the people's wasted time on me. I, I remember my pride. I remember my selfishness. I remember my anger. I remember that He saved my brother and sister from car accidents on separate occasions. I remember that He's given me an amazing wife and a beautiful and terrible twos, crazy daughter. And I remember that He provides for me and that He he loves me regardless of all my insecurities. And do you remember what He's done for you? Do you you remember what He saved you from? Do you remember what He saved you into? Joy flows from right remembering and your joy is only as good as the consistency of remembering what He's done for you. Too often we forget the joy of our past because We want the joy of something temporary in our future. Let's be a church that never stops simply telling people what Jesus did for you. Maybe He's the answer. That's all you have to do. Be vulnerable enough, be courageous enough to open up, to take your relationships to the next level by revealing something core about yourself. The sower and the reaper rejoice together. We sow from joy. And Jesus was the model of this. For the joy set before Him, He endured the cross. The joy set before Him. We have the joy that's behind us and now in us and for our future that our salvation 
has happened and is still happening as a guarantee. And one day we'll realise it in heaven. It's, it's all around us, this salvation. Don't forget it in the light of all you're doing. Don't let the joy of your salvation pass you by because the joy of the Lord is our strength. Not a happy feeling. It comes from something far more solid. It comes from your salvation. Let me pray for us tonight. God, I pray we can just see You so clearly right now, Jesus, that You sit beside every one of us and You say, I see You to the depths, but I love You infinitely. I know You, all Your insecurities and Your sin and Your shame, all the bad parts and all the great parts. I know them all and I love You infinitely. Let us never forget the joy of our salvation. God, help us to be a church that's courageous enough, that's vulnerable enough to go against the flow of calculated transparency, to open up enough in our relationships, to take Him to the next level and just say, hey, see this man who's done this for me. Maybe, maybe he's the answer. While all heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I just wanna give an opportunity for people who, who haven't made that decision for themselves. They don't have that joy of their salvation because maybe they've never made the decision to have Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. You don't feel like you have that, that living water rising up from within you, sustaining you. Maybe you don't have that because you've never had Jesus as your Lord or maybe you have before, but you've walked away. You've let different things take precedence and the throne of your heart. But tonight as we're talking, you want you want the joy of your salvation back again. You need to make a decision to come back to Jesus again. If, if you need to make a decision to know Jesus like that, not make a decision to be, just be part of a great church or subscribe to the Bible, but to really know a person, see a man that does everything for you. If you need to make that decision on the count of three, I just want you to raise your hand and we'll pray together. One, He has you here tonight for this purpose. He knew you'd be here and you'd hear this message and He's knocking on the door of your heart too. Doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter where you've been. Doesn't matter how many mistakes you've made. He sees you to the depths, but He loves you to the skies. So if you need to make a decision for Jesus, three, put your hand up tonight so I can pray with you. Thank you. I see that hand up to the right. Thank you. Is there anyone else that needs to make the decision tonight? Jesus, I thank You that those hands that went up and hearts that opened up, that You have a moment with them, a personal moment that like the woman sitting by the well with You, You just have a moment where You're so real to them. That it's not just another decision that they make in their day, but it's one that offers them eternal life and living water. God, I thank You that salvation has come into their lives and I pray they never lose the joy of it. In Jesus' Name, Amen, Amen. Put our hands together for those decisions, great decisions.